What I found was we did that. We flew to New York. We did knock it out of the park. We did get funded. And then I got a phone call saying, hey, uh, they want to go on ahead and dilute everyone's shares. They're going to come in for several million. And so like in your shares, Marty, we're taking you from 33% down to 4%. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy online course, How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. I wrote this course for those who want to go from feeling frustrated, intimidated, or overwhelmed by the stock market to becoming confident and in control of their financial future. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your discount now. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Marty Mangello. Marty, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Thank you. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm going to introduce you now to the audience. One moment. So Chef Marty Mangello is a story weaver, intoxicating his audiences by stage and television across the world. A mesmerizing speaker. He's published nine books, 200 plus papers, and given over 100 speeches and keynotes in Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Featured on every major news network, Presenting to almost 3 billion viewers is only eclipsed by articles that have been written about him in 160 newspapers and magazines, all the way from the Washington Post, LA Times, to the Australian, and many more. His latest television series is Inside the President's Cabinet. Now, Marty is a former White House chef, private investigator, security expert, executive chef, and a GM of the Camp David Resort and Conference Center, working with the past five presidents for 25 years, from George Herbert Walker Bush all the way through to Donald Trump. Marty, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sponsoring this type of show for the world to listen to. And I myself, of course, have been an entrepreneur for a long time and started and stopped many many companies and living on three continents for a long time, like yourself living in, in Thailand is not easy to do. And you learn a lot. So I feel as though I have learned a lot and I'm ready to share with others. Fantastic. I mean, one thing about your bio that you just comes across and, and about you and talking to you is, you know, your energy to do so many things. I just curious, you know, for the young listeners out there that, that want to achieve a lot in life and do a lot in life. Do you have any advice about how to do that? How to do so many things? Yeah. The biggest thing I can say is I have had people laugh into my face. It's a very common trait by uppity, snotty, rich people sometimes who just will dump all down on your idea, your project, your entrepreneurialism, and you, you have to do a lot like President Trump says and do not listen to them. But I mean, if you check in with Bill Gates, if you check in with the former Steve Jobs or you want to check in with with really anybody who's a success today, they're going to tell you, yeah, you know, Elon Musk, same story. There's so many people who will tell you you're unqualified. You should have gotten your doctoral. You're a clown and nincompoop and you ought to give up these childish dreams. 
and just get a real job like the other adults do. And, you know, it's up to you. You're either going to buy into that or you are going to create the next Lyft, the next Alibaba, the next Amazon, whatever you believe you can do. It's up to you. Yeah. In fact, you know, in life, really, that type of resistance that you meet, you can really, really use it as rocket fuel. You know, as one of my prior guests said, use it as rocket fuel to propel. Yes. <laughs> Be ready for it. And you're going to hear it a lot. And it'll start with your your parents. And and there's just been so many entrepreneurs. Even I was mentioning today to a colleague about Fred Smith from uh, FedEx, you know, had the gall and audacity to publish in college a childish paper that insulted his professors about how he was going to revolutionize the world postal system. And it would extend well beyond revolutionizing the American postal system. And he was almost systemically laughed out of the university and created FedEx. <laughs> so let's take that as inspiration. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever, ever, ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yes. So I was living in Japan. I was contacted by a food service oriented company who wanted to take advantage of the dot bubble and bring food service training online. They thought it would be super sexy, groovy to have a former White House chef as their face mask and to take a couple of hockey pucks right in the teeth. And so I said, yeah, you know, absolutely. And I'm a great presenter. I'm a business plan writer and do a wicked pro forma, but I'm also an excellent, excellent writer and storyteller. And I can help you put the plan together and obviously present and then fly to New York to an ivory tower and bring in millions of dollars and hit it out of the park. So I'm definitely your guy. And that was the setup. That was the pitch. So that's how they, they kind of got started, Andrew. When you said the setup, it made me think of The Sting. You remember that old time yeah. movie? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So we got the setup. And so then off I flew to Arizona and they floated numerous stock certificates past my desk. And of course, the bylaws. And I was still in the military at the time because I'm 30 year retired military in the United States. I was still in the military. And so I was a bit naive as to how these things work and how they operate. And, you know, I didn't really realize critical statements in the founder's document and in the bylaws, which were registered with the secretary of state. I didn't yet really understand how all those things worked. And, you know, I quickly come to to grips with it because to put it quite short and sweet, I did actually fly into Phoenix, Arizona. I did sit with them for several days and honed the entire pitch. We had some would-be actors come in. One of them portrayed the bad guy who had nothing good to say about your plan. We had one that was just literally stupid and was constantly bewildered. And then we had one who thought everything you were pitching and offering for their investment was wonderful and, and honey syrup. So 
we went through these training sessions several times to perfect our pitch and overcome objections and don't handle it that way and don't get bent out of shape when the person makes fun of you. And, you know, this was really beneficial prior to flying to New York to the ivory tower to go up to the 78th floor and do the professional pitch to the hedge fund that was really interested. And what I found was we did that. We flew to New York. We did knock it out of the park. We did get funded. And then I got a phone call saying, hey, uh, they want to go on ahead and dilute everyone's shares. They're going to come in for several million. And so like in your shares, Marty, we're taking you from 33% down to 4%. And I was not real thrilled about that. I really wasn't talked with. It was not discussed with me. And then obviously uh, the next thing, the next phone call the next day was from the attorney saying, in accordance with the bylaws, we formed a quorum. We had a special meeting. We have gone ahead and slashed everyone's shares. The last valuation was a dollar. So we're sending you a check for 40 bucks for your shares that we took. And you know, everything's in accordance with the Secretary of State and the bylaws. So now that that's done, you're a 4% owner or something or a 3% owner. And, and I was really incensed. I was not familiar with liquidation clauses and these various other clauses in the bylaws, like unanimous voting, which could be in there prior to acceptance of any deal from any investor. And all the different little faculties that a person today, an entrepreneur or an investor could put in. And then honestly, we had one or two people in that group who did nothing. They were squatters. So they came in, they were given their cut, the bylaws were filed, and then Andrew, they did nothing. And so today we call these types of investors in the group, in the inner core, we call them squatters, and there was no provision for like, you know, you're to work 40 hours per week on this. If you don't, you lose your shares, and after two months, they're taken from you. Also, other provisions that I look for in deals today, whether I'm investing in it or, or I'm actually on the team, is what if the person gets sick and has a horrible cancer situation where they're going to need to be out of work with rehabilitative therapy? for you know a year and four months mm. where is the provision for that because certainly we we are not unfeeling and uncaring and unkind and unloving but you know we've had people come back and say well look even though i'm going to be out for about a year and a half i still expect when the company gets funded in about six months on that 70 million dollar deal i'm supposed to get a cash windfall of three million and i want my three million and you're kind of like wondering, man, I should have had a, we should have had a provision in the bylaws for this and the founder's document because, you know, at this point with the money coming in, this person hasn't worked for over a year. It's been a year and one month. We have not seen them. They've done nothing. And now they're threatening us with they want the three million because that's what it says. So <laughs> I quickly learned, Andrew, these clauses and provisions including poison pills and squatters and liquidation clauses. They have got to be addressed in mm. a founder's document and bylaws 
Because whether you're investing in the project or you're part of the group that is launching the new technology or the widget or whatever it is, the new, the new drink, the new food, the new snack, whatever it is, I don't care. These are just basic provisions that have got to be, to be dealt with. And the final one I'll mention is relative valuation and absolute valuation <laughs> and how you're going to value something. So, you know, you had best take a look at the different forms of valuation yep. and really, really make sure that they're down to earth and make a lot of sense. Because when you go to investors and you say things that are crazy and outlandish, like we now think the company's worth, you know, 152 million, and that's why we're asking blah, 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 you can get shredded in a meeting. Exactly. with your valuation. And so these are the big things that I share today in my speeches and talks and workshops with entrepreneurs who are very concerned about being taken advantage of. These are such critical factors. My, my question to wrap up the story is, so what happened eventually as everything continued on with this business? Yeah, I told them, you know, essentially they could go screw themselves like any good Oh gosh, I must have been about 32. I'm 55 now. Like any good young 31 or 32-year-old would. I was very incensed, hurt, and disgusted, like most children are who are unfamiliar <laughs> with business. <laughs> so, you know, and I still have those stock certificates. And if I ever uh I check on them once in a while with what they're doing yep. in the state of Arizona. Yep. So I have like several attorneys and one of them is pretty funny. One of my entertainment attorneys, Tony M. Marcolini, she'll often say, no, we're not actually going to pursue that particular trademark that you have right now that they're violating. We're going to let them continue to sell and do things. And then when we do sue them, we're going to go through a discovery phase and pull all of their sales records for 10 years. And so, you know, sometimes people need to be taught a special lesson. Mm. We call it ice cold dish that we serve up. <laughs> uh, so tell me, how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this? Biggest lesson is liquidation preferences, liquidation clause. How is the company allowed to be liquidated or diluted? And so through dilution, many times this is where investment will come in and it gets very testy. Well, you know, <laughs> Mm. Rob's going to put in, I mean, he's personally going to put in, it's not a hedge fund. It's not a hedge fund. Rob wants to put in 80 million. So I think Rob gets to, uh, hold on a second, stop getting all loud and animated and swinging your arms around. Here's a cotton candy. That's great that Rob wants to put 80 million in, but our, our dilution clauses and our liquidation preferences say the following things. Mm. Okay. And the one that can be helpful or not is the unanimous decision. So say there's five partners who created this technology and it's a very strong IP. Maybe it takes a unanimous vote to let somebody like Rob come in with 80 million, whoever Rob is. Yep, okay. Yep. Maybe the unanimous vote is not, maybe it's too strong for this particular contract. Maybe we want to have it to where it says four out of five partners must vote to let any investor come in. Yep. Oftentimes, the way we deal with these clauses now in contracts, if there's dissent and the person's enraged, 
and says, well, flat out, I'm not doing another thing for this and I'm going to sit and squat on my stock shares and you guys just go on ahead and do what you want to do with Rob and his stinking 80 million. We have actually mapped out a provision in the contract, what we're going to do with that one person. How are they now handled? Because they can't come to the office anymore. They hate everybody. Hmm. And are they sold out? Are they bought out? What is the valuation of the current shares that they owned? Most of the time, I would say, Andrew, the thing I learned is it's good to just go on ahead and remove them from the process and pay them off silently. They can still own something. Hmm but they're no longer welcome to come in or participate. They're not allowed to vote at any further shareholder meetings, but they're not going to have their stuff seized. They'll just receive a check. Yep. And that, you know, you have, you have to have something like, look at three years, your checks are done, bro. At five years, at 10 years, you, you can't like always continue to, to pay someone. And as the company grows, like we've seen with Airbnb, and their recent IPO or Lyft or Alibaba or Amazon or Apple, as the company grows, you've got to come to grips with old shareholders who were there from the beginning. Mm. You can't be carrying them to the tune of 300 million a year checks. (laughs) Just because back in 1979, they actually knew Steve, And it was before he was even married and they worked in the garage with Steve Jobs and they helped actually. It's like, dude, it's been like 30 years, bro. We're not sending you another 300 million this year for 2021. It's crazy. So you got to have provisions for that in the contract. Yep. Yep. All right. Let me summarize a few things I take away. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of interesting things that are really a little bit technical here. And so I'll go through a couple of quick things. In 1995, my best friend from Ohio, where we both grew up since we were young, we knew each other. He came to Thailand and we set up a coffee factory here. where We roast coffee and we supply that to hotels, restaurants, coffee shops and offices. So it's a B2B coffee roasting business. We've had that business now for 25 years. But when we set up the business, we had founder agreements, basically. And that's where I think the first lesson that that I want to take away from your story is that when you found a, a company, you really need to sit down and have some founding documents about who's doing what and all that. And that raises also the issue of sweat equity. So sweat equity is when you do have some people in that company, in that founding group that don't have any money to put into the business, but they have the knowledge and the willingness to work. And therefore, you can do some sort of calculation as to how much work they do and what they get for that. Because there are other people in that group that may be able to provide capital. But in my case, for instance, Dale became the managing director of the business. And I I never have been an employee of the business. I've been an equal shareholder, but I've been an external shareholder. So the first thing is like founding documents. The second one is sweat equity. And then even in – we have a shareholders agreement. And as we started to bring in other shareholders – we created a shareholders agreement since my expertise is in valuation. And in fact, I teach something called the valuation masterclass. And in that, and and in my own experience, we even put in a provision in the shareholders agreement of the actual way we're going to value it, which was very simple. I I basically said, we're going to look at the stock market, look at the multiple of the stock market. We're going to look at the last audited financial statements for the year. 
and we're going to create a multiple on that, and that will be the amount. Mm-hmm. So then we created clauses where any of the founding members could sell their shares at that price, and that all the founders yes. had had a right of you know first refusal, and yes. it would it would be distributed equally amongst all the founding shareholders that they could all exactly. buy it. And if if you didn't come up with the cash, then you know there's nothing. And if no shareholders came up with the cash, then that person, that founder, would be able to sell those shares to anybody else. This type wonderful of- pre pre planning. Oh, it sounds like an excellent prenup. Yeah, and the, the benefit of this is that you know you don't want to have a business where one guy walks out and sells his shares to your competitor. Right. <laughs> so that that founders agreement and that the shareholders agreement is critical. Now, once you get out to be public company these types of shareholders agreements are no longer really valid because, you know, except in some very rare situations, you're, right. you're meant to be equal to all the other partners. Now, yes. now the other thing is interesting is that my best friend and I, Dale, as we ran our business, we were in Thailand, we were two foreigners at the time, and we didn't, we knew we weren't going to get money from the banks and we didn't really have a story to tell at the time and we didn't tell it. So it was all self-funded. And we knew we had we had to fund it ourselves. We had to build it ourselves. And then eventually, we have looked at outside shareholders, and we brought in what I would call strategic shareholders. In the case of one person who has particular relationships or can bring something great to the business, and then there's also external investors. Now, if an external investors came in, let's say someone said, "Look, your goal is to sell to a hundred uh, hotels this year, and we can get you there in a month because." we have access to a hundred hotels right away. That's mm-hmm. going to accelerate your revenue plan. And therefore that, that strategic partner could bring a lot of value and you will absolutely be diluted in your shareholding down. But the trade-off is that you're going to get a bigger company. So dilution is and, not, it's impossible to avoid dilution except in right. very rare cases. It's impossible to avoid dilution, but you know, you want to have the provisions to, to go through it. So this song- and the one thing the one thing I would mention with somebody like that coming in that I never knew, I thought that they always, when they come in, get to tell us what to do. And so over time, I've learned that, no, that's not true. You can write an agreement because Rob wants to come in with 80 million cash doesn't mean he now gets to come in here with his wife and tell us how to run the coffee company and sell. And no, you're just coming in with your money. And you'll be paid your your distributions, but no, you're not here to tell anyone what to do in the coffee cup. And and I never knew that. I thought, well, gosh, they're coming in with the money. There, we've got a new boss. Yeah. No, 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 exactly. no, that's not true. That doesn't. The two don't automatically equal that scenario. And a lot of young folks think that anyone that comes in with dough, that they automatically ought to be allowed. And and I've seen them destroy hotels, destroy companies create chaos they should not have been telling anyone what to do mm, yep and the, the last part of it is thinking about valuation you mentioned about absolute valuation relative valuation so this is my area of expertise in fact i was asked by a friend of mine here in bangkok to sell his software company to microsoft and i went through we did a deal basically pretty quickly for about 85 million us that they bought it back in about 2008 but the point was was that when Microsoft was offering to buy it, their offer was something like fifty million or something. And then when I came on the team and started to handle the transaction, basically I went to Microsoft and I said, "This company is worth two hundred million. 
And then we negotiated from that point, and that in negotiation is the concept of setting an anchor. They had set an anchor at 50, I set an anchor at 200. We eventually agreed upon 85 million. But the point was, was that even though I'm an expert in valuation and you know you can bring out all the numbers and charts and graphs and all that, ultimately valuation is a negotiation. And so mm -hmm. I think for the listeners out there, you need to set yourself up for how you're gonna negotiate that. You need to have your evidence as to why you think it's worth that. But the point is, is that there is no hard and fast way of valuing anything. Ultimately, it's a final negotiation between two, an interested seller and an interested buyer. So those are the takeaways. Anything else you'd add? Yeah, I would just say again, focus on a prenup. They are not disgusting documents. The more time you put into a prenuptial agreement and what's going to happen when and how, and if this occurs, we know exactly what to do. You will sleep so well at night knowing that everything is covered with every eventuality. And a lot of people think that even between couples, the prenups are filthy and should never, never be talked about. And, and I will often tell them a little bit more about a prenup. My wife and I are both previously married. I often tell people, look, a prenup, actually one of the big things is if like I should have a financial windfall, my wife's ex, it specifically states in the prenup, he's not allowed to come in and benefit or take her back to court or anything off of my inheritance, my lottery ticket, my whatever. The other things about prenups is your will, literally your iron will of your mind and spirit must be followed through and effectuated. So whatever you want done, and a lot of prenups and corporations cover turning in a copy of your will, turning in a copy of your prenuptial agreement, and the entire founder's document will cover your own death and mm -hmm. what will happen your shares and do they go to your spouse or your children? That's all really important stuff. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked with. They're like, <laughs> I mean, really, Marty, <laughs> uh, isn't it a bit far-fetched? I mean, my death. I mean, you actually have that kind of stuff in the, I'm like, every adult company north of 5 million in valuation that could grow to 50 or 100 has all of this stuff that I'm talking about in it. Mm. The only person who's laughing here out loud in a boisterous and obnoxious manner is you. And you are actually the real inexperienced child. And when a person acts like that and laughs out loud, Andrew, I may actually say like, this is not good. You're too inexperienced in business. I don't, don't think it's good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they never have heard of these things like, you know, and they'll say things like, oh, come on, Marty. You know, I would never do something like that. It's like, have you ever been at the table where the executor of an estate showed up whose name was Johnny and uses F and MF in every other sentence and starts threatening all the owners of a company? And this person is from Kentucky or wherever. I'm not even sure, but they are the executor of the estate and now own actually these shares. And trust me, if you've never been through that, you want to have all these clauses ironed out now before you plunge in because everyone's looking at putting 10 million in. You want to have all these clauses ironed out now. It's a 
you know, one other one is about death. Since Dale and I have been friends since since we were about 14, we both own equal shares in the company. And naturally, those shares would go to our families. But what right. Dale and I decided was that since our company is in Thailand, and since obviously it would be devastating to lose your best friend, and our families are in the U.S., like what are they going to do with this company, right? Right. So what we decided is upon death of either one of us, our shares would go to, our complete shares would go to the other. How about that? And the, How ben about the, that? Ben the benefit of that is that, let's say we both own about 40%. So that would mean that though, if something happened to me or something happened to Dale, we would be devastated. We would take possession of 80% of the company, which would allow us then to be able to either grow it the way we wanted to, or just sell it and say, here's 80% of this company. And it's going to be much more attractive for a buyer than the buyer to say, okay, wait, I got you at 40% and then Dale's or Andrew's family that I've got to deal with. That's too much. And there's other tag along clauses and stuff that you can do for the family, but we just decided right. to do it that way. So there's all yeah. kinds of things you can do with the agreement. So I think that's a lot of lessons from this. So based upon what you've learned from this story and what you've continued to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Get a super strong prenuptial agreement that covers everything from angry outbursts to storming out of the building to threats via email and phone to full-on intimidation tactics with seven attorneys and people screaming, I just put 90000 on a retainer down and we're going to drag you through the mud. Have all that stuff spelled out in a prenuptial agreement, all that behavior and what happens and who does what and when this occurs. and Because then you'll be able to, to sleep very well at night. And also, when people know what's going to happen because you act those ways and it's all spelled out, you know what the weirdest thing is, Andrew? They don't act that way. <laughs> if it's all Things start working out, properly. Like, yeah, and, and we spell out stuff like heated and raised voices or intimidating or emasculating emails, text messages, WhatsApp, right. communications that are sent to other primary members of the board, you know, are not welcomed or tolerated. And if they occur... We have a step-by-step -step process. The first time is a warning. The second time is admonishment with suspension. The third time is removal, stock share seizure, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, when you have all that stuff spelled out, like this is what's going to happen, then everybody's on alert. Like, hey, man, don't, dude, don't, dude, 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 don't. Uh, don't don't you remember Relax. on page 122 it says in clause 15 part h yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so dude dude don't don't <laughs> and every, everybody knows this is what's going to happen yep. you are going to be removed from the building bro so yep. just be cool and be cool what dale and i say to each other is principles before personalities and that our yeah. objective our objective is to build a successful business. And if we get into something heated, we back off because we also made an agreement that was a gentleman's agreement that if the business was going to hurt our relationship as friends, that we would get out of the business. So, all right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal is London 2021, December 7th to 16th, the World Leaders Summit. 
We are meeting in London next year, and we had over 120 speakers this year for World Leaders Summit, and 90-plus countries attended, so tens of thousands of people uh, in the presentations, 10 straight days of presentations. We had uh, the medical panel, uh, blockchain, just a wonderful, wonderful vehicle, World Leaders Summit at worldleadersummit.com. And we we are just so psyched out about World Leaders Summit. It's kind of like the Davos for the young. And, mm. and I often tell people, young doesn't mean like we have a 10-year-old who who is, is a speaker and we have a hundred year old who's a speaker. So young doesn't mean like 30 and below young is a way of thinking. Mm. The Davos for the young worldleadersummit.com. Fantastic. And I'll put the, the links in the show notes. So for the listeners out there that you want to learn more, just go to the link and learn more and we'll see you there. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your discount on how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market course. As we conclude, Marty, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I just wish everybody a wonderful Christmas and New Year. And I know many of my friends are waiting for Chinese New Year, the first week of February 2021. So let's celebrate two New Years, three New Years. Uh, We'd love to celebrate all the holidays, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, and 2020 will be a year to celebrate its passing. And that's a wrap on another great story (laughs) to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside.